Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSellaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, June 23rd, 2019, and this is show number 737. No, not 737 max, just plain old 737. Steve and I are gearing up for our trip to Chile, or I should say Chile, on Tuesday to see another total eclipse. My theory is that when you go to your third one, you are officially eclipse chasers. We saw one on the MacMania cruise between Australia and New Caledonia, and then we went to Oregon last year, or a couple of years ago. Was it two years ago? Anyway, to see one with Gene McDonald. This time, we're traveling with a group from UCLA who bring their very own personal astrophysicist. Get this, his name is Jean-Luc. Won't forget that name anytime soon. Well, other than seeing an eclipse, we're also going to have some super nerdy fun going to see telescopes. For example, we're going to be going to see ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. You may have heard of ALMA as it was one of the six sets of telescopes that was used to photograph the black hole. That, that picture, you remember, came out back in April. We'll also be going to the Paranal Observatory. I really want to call it paranormal, but Paranal Observatory, which is home of the Very Large Telescope. That's not a description. That's its actual name. They even abbreviate it with the acronym VLT. In any case, it's bound, bound to be a fun, nerdy trip. Plus, Chilean Malbec wine, am I right? We will be leaving you in the capable hands of Bart Bouchatz, who will be hosting the uh, the show this coming week, and Alistair Jenks from New Zealand will be hosting the following week. It's a great treat for me to get to hear their shows, and I'm forever indebted to them for doing this. One thing to keep in mind, there will be no live show while we're gone. We will return to your regularly scheduled live show on Sunday, July 14th. Please pass the word. I love that Chit Chat Across the Pond this week was called a light episode because in our world, this is light compared to programming by stealth, but it probably wasn't what normal people would think of as light. I interviewed Dr. Devin Palashik of the University of Waikato about her work rehabilitating violent criminal psychopaths. Now, I'm sure a bunch of you scoffed at the very concept, but that's what makes Devon's work so fascinating. Through the techniques developed in New Zealand, they have actually reduced the rate of recidivism, which is the reincarceration rate. She has a delightful sense of humor and a fabulous voice and accent as she tells us about working with such terrifying people. Remember, it's a light episode. You can find this episode in your podcatcher of choice under Chit Chat Across the Pond or Chit Chat Across the Pond Light. And of course, you can find it over at podfeet.com. It's episode number 599, Dr. Devin Polashik on Psychopaths. While we're gone, Chit Chat Across the Pond will still continue because I pre-recorded two more episodes. The second week, we'll have the very first Programming by Stealth supplemental episode. It's not with Bart, but instead I interview the awesome Dorothy Rendon about her work to bring all students the Programming by Stealth Index. First, we nerd out on how she created the original index using Excel, CSV files, a Perl script, and HTML. Then she goes on to explain how after she learned a lot more in Programming by Stealth, she was able to vastly simplify things by putting the data into a JSON file and creating the web page using Bootstrap and Mustaches. It is super nerdy fun, and Bart will post that one while I'm gone in both the PBS and full Chit Chat Across the Pond feeds. Then for the last week, I have another treat for you. 
the self-proclaimed crusher of dreams, Dr. Marianne Gary, also of the University of Waikato in New Zealand, comes back to the show, this time to explain to us how science is broken. It's a fascinating look at what's been happening to scientific journals and how the changes are affecting the science that gets funded. So pretty much more dream crushing, that's what I would call it. Anyway, there's a lot to look forward to in Chit Chat Across the Pond coming up while we're gone. A few months ago, I created a video tutorial for Screencast Online on my favorite blogging software, MarsEdit. To illustrate MarsEdit, I needed a place to post fake blog posts and pages publishing from MarsEdit to WordPress. I didn't want to clutter up podfeet.com with all this fake data, so instead I decided to install WordPress on my Mac. But to install WordPress, you need a web server, a database, and a programming language. Turns out that's easy enough. You just install MAMP, which gives you Apache as a web server, MySQL as a database, and PHP as a programming language. It worked great for the tutorial. But people wrote in to Don after watching the Mars Edit tutorial asking me exactly how do you actually install MAMP and how do you install WordPress into MAMP. So this month, my video tutorial for Screencast Online is all about how to do just that. It's perhaps a more specialized tutorial than I normally do, but I think it's pretty nifty that we can do this. And it's actually not that hard, but I think it helps to be able to see it in a video tutorial. If installing a web server and WordPress onto your Mac is of interest to you, go check it out at screencastonline.com. And of course, there's a direct link in the show notes and in the chapter marks in this podcast. There's a free seven-day trial available where you can get all of the back catalog along with my amazing tutorial. If you can be patient and wait until the next Screencast Online monthly magazine comes out, you can buy single issues or a subscription, and in that you get a whole bunch of video tutorials along with written articles by tech luminaries, even me. One final plug here. I got to be on the Daily Tech News Show this week with Tom Merritt and Sarah Lane and Roger Chang just on Friday. In episode 3558, named by popular vote in the live audience, The First Wrong is Always Right, we covered several medium topics instead of one main topic. We talked about how AT&T is now the fastest mobile network in America with their fake 5G service. They call it 5G evolution, which is not 5G at all, but it turns out it's the fastest. We discussed a recent study of people's perceptions of the names car companies give their self-driving capabilities. You know, like how Tesla calls it, calls it autopilot. What does that actually mean to, to people without knowing that that name was from Tesla? For example, can you take your hands off the wheel? That's one of the things they uh, they asked people, and it was really interesting. We learned about how the gentleman who lead the uh, the gentleman who led the team to create USB knew all along that this non reversible connector would make us batty, but it would be far too expensive to make it reversible. I had a lot of fun with the DTNS gang as always. You can find the Daily Tech News Show in your podcatcher of choice. Or you can go watch the video at a link in the show notes to the dailytechnewsshow.com. Actually, it's dailytechnewsshow.com. Two weeks ago, I promised an audio interview with Chris Chapman of Mac Stadium, but then I didn't play it in the show because I ran out of time. And then I didn't play it last week either because I wanted to save it for this week. I'm going to play it for you now. I want to set up why I wanted to talk to him first. One of my favorite Nocilla castaways is Caleb Fong, also known as Geeko Supremo. He's been super active in our Slack group at podfeed.com slash Slack. In particular, he seems to find the most interesting programming tools. A while ago, he brought up the concept of a Docker container. I asked him to explain to me what it was, and in a few text messages back and forth, I still couldn't figure out what they were. I saw in the Mac Stadium brochures 
at uh, the AltConf that they had something to do with Docker containers. So I waited for a time that his booth wasn't mobbed, and I asked Chris if he would explain them to me. I won't even start to try to explain them myself because it took Chris about a half hour to help me understand them just a little bit. After we got done with that conversation, I thought it would be fun to hear about Mac Stadium itself. I refer in this to a video playing in the background, and Mac Stadium's Senior Director of Product Marketing, Heather Robertson, was nice enough to give me a copy of the video so you could see it yourself. I've embedded it in the show notes so you can all see these rack-mounted Macs for yourself. It's glorious. Anyway, with all that, let's have a listen to Chris. I'm with Chris Chapman from Mac Stadium, and I have just made him spend about... Uh, maybe 25 minutes explaining some stuff to me about uh, Docker containers and things that uh, Geeko Supremo has been telling me about. But we're going to switch gears here now and let him tell you about Mac Stadium. Thanks. Uh, Mac Stadium is a global provider of Mac infrastructure. So you might think of us as an AWS or uh, Azure for Mac infrastructure. We help developers all over the world who build iOS apps have the capacity they need to run their builds. And we do everything from minis and pros to even an iMac Pro, believe it or not, in Iraq uh, to help people do things. So you would connect into Mac Stadium and, and run everything, build everything up on your servers, just not having to do anything locally? Uh, yeah, usually what folks do is they have some, some, you know, they may have their laptop where they run their local development environment. But when they check their code in, that's when the magic starts and they start needing lots of servers to run the builds and test them and simulate them and do all the things you have to do to get an, an app to work. And that's where Mac Stadium comes in. We can take you from one Mac Mini all the way up to racks and racks of pros to have as much power as you need to run as many builds as you want. Now, I kind of wish we had video going. We are looking over on this monitor of literally racks and racks and racks and racks and racks of Mac Minis. And did I hear you just say that you've got a Mac Pros? Or I'm sorry, uh, iMac Pros in racks? Yeah, we'll pretty much put any. I mean, the big the big secret sauce for us is we're really good at taking this consumer-based product and turn it into something that can stay up 24 by 7 in a data center. So everything Apple puts out, we put in a data center somehow and an iMac Pro, believe it or not can go in a data center if you rack it the right way. It just seems like a big waste of a monitor, that's for <laughs> sure, right? It is, but honestly, until yesterday, it was the fastest Apple hardware that you could put anywhere to run builds with. And for these you know, large companies doing lots of app builds every day, it's all about build time and however fast you can get that done, whatever it takes. It's pretty cool to know that this even exists. I, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know you had this because where, where did you say you have these data centers built? Uh, so we start, we're co- corporate headquartered in Atlanta. We have Atlanta, we have Las Vegas, we have Silicon Valley, we have Northern Ireland, and we have Frankfurt. So we have a pretty good global footprint with the EU and the United States. Wow. Now, Las Vegas, you doing that because you got that good solar plant there? <laughs> Actually, uh, one of our uh, originating sites was in Vegas. A guy started Mac Mini Colo named Brian Stuckey. He was kind of the genesis idea behind what Mac Stadium evolved into, and uh, uh, he was he started there. So, and it's also a really good location for network and uh, access to the West Coast. So, oh, okay, okay. So, so um, would would your services be for an indie developer or a big corporation? Or yeah, yeah a little bit of both. both. So, yeah, you can go on our site 
any time and like pull down a single mini and try it out for 24 hours and if you like it get more and keep adding until you you know you start out with your game in the garage and then when you turn into a global corp game dev company we've got racks and racks of them for you so so the minimum is it is a whole mac mini not a yeah. vm on a mac yeah mini? yeah we don't do fractional vm so we really try to do apple the way apple wants apple done which means it's mac os on mac hardware and you have to be dedicated to the hardware they don't like multi-tenancy and they don't like you splitting apples into slices <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's you do have a little bit of a uh, um an overlord that's watching to see if you uh, do anything to violate their terms and stuff that you got to you got to play in their their rules right? their rules yeah so we but we do offer physical macs and we do offer vmware and like enterprise class storage and cisco firewalls and sort of all kinds of trappings around it to make it enterprise scalable and you can do virtual machines but you'll always own however many hosts it takes to run your virtual environment or that'll oh, okay. be dedicated to you with a minimum of one with a minimum of one. Oh, interesting so that's got to be a little harder to level load. I mean, the magic of doing VMs is if I'm not using my part and you're using that part, if we can share something. Right, but typically our customers are doing, like I said, build capacity, so they're counting on being able to fire off a build any time of the day and get the capacity they need to run okay. it. So they can say, hey, we typically need two, three, four, seven, eight hosts to pile watermark how, many, how much load we're going to take on average, and then they just get that. And if they need more, they can always add another one, and within a few hours and get it online and scale up. I see. Okay. And now uh, you've announced a new product here called Orca. Yes. And it's not just a really good martini, <laughs> or a really good uh, margarita, margarita you gave us, right? No. What is it, Orca? It stands for Orchestration with Kubernetes on Apple. And what we basically did is put Kubernetes and Docker technology on Apple hardware so that uh, developers can now use those technologies to actually move Mac OS and develop with Mac OS in that same way. So it kind of puts them on a level playing field with their peers who are doing that kind of thing on the Android and Windows and other side of the market. And that lets them do, do development with their in the same flow with their their other partners working on the other operating. Yeah, systems, they can right? they can literally you know with a single command spin up a whole Mac OS and have it ready to develop instead of having to kind of manage and do all the VM management that they're normally having to do with VMware or something like that. Well, this is very cool. It's I'm certain it's out of my league, but I still <laughs> I love I love seeing what you guys are doing and that you figured out a way to make these things work with uh, with the Mac and with Apple's rules. If people want to learn more, where would they go? They would go to www.macstadium.com, or you can also throw, also throw a slash Orca on that to get Orca-specific information, but uh, check us out. All right. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you heard recently, I was just talking about Dr. Marianne Gary and how she's been on Chit Chat Across the Pond quite a few times and has been recently. Well, she's a professor of false memories who likes to call herself the crusher of dreams, as I explained. She told me she would like to be able to do interviews while at conferences and asked if I could give her a recommendation for a portable method to do recordings. Now, you would think that after 14 years of podcasting, I would immediately know the answer to that question, but it's a harder question than it sounds, and it's actually not in my wheelhouse. I can interview anyone in the world with absolute ease, but I rarely record people in person on my own. In fact, Marianne is one of the very few people I interview where we're in the same room. Now, many of you are saying, but Allison, you and Steve do those great interviews from CES and CSUN. Well, it turns out those interviews are recorded via Steve's video camera using an Audio-Technica System 10 ATW1702 portable camera mount wireless microphone system. It's the short name. Anyway, this is a really cool setup. I hold a wireless mic that has a digital transmitter in, in it, which transmits to a receiver that's mounted to the top of Steve's camcorder. 
The receiver is then hardwired to audio input on the camcorder. Steve produces the videos and then he extracts the audio from the video that we use in the podcast. This works great, but obviously that's not the kind of system Marianne would be looking for. I've used a little Zoom H2 handhold recorder for years, but the batteries corroded in it, so it was finally time to put her down. For my birthday, I asked Steve for the big girl Zoom H4N Pro. There's a review of that coming later in this episode, but I want to get too far ahead of myself here. Both the H2 and the H4 are great devices, but they're really complicated, as you will hear. Since Mary Ann, like many of us, uses an iPhone, I thought maybe a microphone that attached directly to her lightning port would be the way to go. When we interviewed Joe Duganzik in his tiny house for Chit Chat Across the Pond last year, he let me borrow his $140 Shure MV88. It was really cool and it worked well, but it requires you to move the phone back and forth with the interviewee to get audio. I didn't think, to get good audio, I should say. I didn't think Marianne would want to do that for her first interviews. After a bit of poking around, I settled on recommending another Zoom product, the Zoom IQ7. It's around $110 on Amazon. Zoom IQ7 is very small and very light. It's like around two and a half or two inches square and about an inch thick. So it's very easy to pack along just in case a recording opportunity breaks out. The Zoom IQ7 is designed to allow you to do either audio only recording or to record video with audio. In order to accommodate both uses, the mics are in a rotating capsule, which allows you to change the orientation for the best stereo recording. The ability to adapt for video adds complexity, but it would give her more flexibility to record in the future to do video. Another option would have been to get her the Zoom IQ6, which is a very similar device, but with fixed microphones for just audio recording. I actually didn't know about the Zoom IQ when I made my recommendation, and that might have been a little bit easier for her. But let's get back to the Zoom IQ7. It has a couple of features that are really well done for such a tiny accessory. It has a tiny analog gain dial, not tiny, it's got an analog gain dial marked from 1 to 10, so real time you can make adjustments while recording. It also features a 3 LED peak meter. That's not a lot of granularity with 3 LEDs, but you might at least notice the red one if you're too hot. It also has a headphone jack that allows you to do real time monitoring of your audio input. Being able to monitor audio is crucial to ensuring that you're getting a good recording. There's also a three-way switch that says 90, 120, and MS. The 90 and 120 are very easy to explain. They describe the angle of the cone in which the microphone will pick up the audio. It rolls off outside of that angle. In our experiments, 120 degrees allows you to put the iPhone standing on its head and have people around a table be picked up well by the mic. I got to tell you, M-S continues to baffle me. I read and reread the section in the manual, and I was no brighter about it for, af- for that after I was done reading. Anyway, the Zoom has an iOS app called Zoom Handy Recorder that is not highly reviewed in the App Store, but it does get the job done. The interface looks positively iOS 6 era, but ancient design seems to be the hallmark of Zoom devices. The Zoom Handy Recorder app doesn't require a Zoom device, so you can play along with your iPhone's internal mic with this tool if you like. With the Zoom IQ7, you'll be queried to give permission to use your microphone, as you would expect. We only had three LEDs to watch the levels on the device itself, but in Handy Recorder, you get a nice long meter for left and right channels, and it shows from green to yellow to red to help you keep your levels in line. Remember, you've got that handy gain dial you can work on on the device and watch your gain on the phone. 
You can choose the format of your recorded file from an uncompressed WAV file to three qualities of AAC from 64 to 170 kilobits per second. There's also a software mic gain control, so you can set the default point from which to start the recording level. There are a few rudimentary effects you can apply before recording, such as an equalizer. It's not clear to me whether these effects are applied as you're recording or after the recording is made, which wouldn't be as effective. Now let's talk about the quality of the audio to see if you actually need a Zoom IQ7. The first test I did was to record myself with the internal mics on the iPhone XS and then with the IQ7. Let's listen to those two recordings. This is a wave recording using the Zoom Handy Recorder application on the iPhone XS using the internal microphone. So you're listening to internal, not any external microphone. This is a stereo recording made with the Zoom IQ7 external microphone plugged into an iPhone XS. I'm recording with the Zoom Handy application. So the Zoom IQ7 recording is better, but I'm not sure it was significantly better. I know how to hold a mic, and I'm willing and able to hold a real mic or an iPhone right up to someone's mouth to get good audio. So the internal mic on the iPhone would work for me. If you are equally skilled and bold, then I'm not sure you would need an IQ7. But that was not the scenario Marianne was imagining. She wanted to be able to stand the iPhone in the middle of a table and just talk naturally with someone across a table. We did a ton of experiments trying to figure out how to orient the little capsules to get this scenario to create a good recording. Even with constant rereading of the manual, it took me a long time to figure out exactly what they meant and how they meant for the capsules to be set. I took a photo of the configuration that worked best for us. The iPhone was upside down, so the mic is mounted on the top via the lightning connector. The mic with switch was set to 120 degrees to get all-around audio. The capsule with L slash R, left-right, is pointed towards the front of the phone, and the arrow on the mic is pointing up. Now, this allows you to see the front of the screen on the iPhone and use the gain dial to raise or lower the gain as appropriate for you and your interviewee. The unfortunate thing about the iPhone is that the API doesn't allow apps to be right-side up when the phone has the lightning port facing up. That means with any mic attached, you'll have to see the recording app upside down. Before we go any further, I have to say that the initial recordings with this configuration of the Zoom IQ7 were horrible. There was a buzz on it that made the recordings completely unusable. Here's a very quick snippet of the buzz for you to enjoy. I'm not sure you could hear that really well, but it's really, really annoying on top of the recording. At that point, we dug through the trash to pull out the box so Marianne could send this darn thing back. But before going through with that, Marianne found a verified buyer on Amazon who had written in a very in-depth review. In the review, the person explained that if you hear noise on the recording, that means it's picking up interference from the circuitry of the radios from the iPhone itself. They recommended putting the phone in airplane mode, but for some reason that did not turn off all the radios for me. I ended up turning off Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and cellular by hand, and it eliminated the noise. That should have been in the darn instruction manual. Now I'll finally let you hear a clip of Marianne and me making nonsense conversation to test the Zoom IQ7 against the internal mics of the iPhone. We did the recordings in the kitchen, so we're surrounded by tile, granite, and windows, which is basically an environment designed for maximum ambient room echo. Before you listen to the recordings, I apologize in advance for using I as the object of a preposition in the second recording. You'll first hear the internal iPhone mic, and then the Zoom IQ7 mic. Now we're using the iPhone XS uh, internal microphones. It's closer to Marianne than to me, but still 
kind of, I don't know, what, two or three feet between each of us. Talk to us, Marianne. Okay, so the advantage that this has over the thing with the mic on it is that it's free. So it's simple. Just, it's, I mean, it's free insofar as once you pay $175,000 for the iPhone, then, then you don't have to buy anything else. All right. This is our 231st test. This is the Zoom IQ7 set to a gain of eight. It's sitting about halfway between Marianne and I, maybe two or three feet between uh, each of us in the mic. And I have now put it in airplane mode and turned off Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. How are you doing today, Marianne? Well, after two, let's 231 is the charm. Is that right? <laughs> That's what we're hoping. We want to see whether we get no buzz on this now. So you had to turn off. So airplane mode alone doesn't cut it? No, because airplane mode, well, well it seems to still have Wi-Fi and Bluetooth okay. going, which is mm. weird. I thought that would have it off. That but is it, weird. I had to turn everything off to get it to really work. Well, it would be, well, maybe they do say it. We didn't. I've read a lot of that. When I say we, you, did you read the manual? (laughs) I did read the manual. It's actually not that long. It's just in 48 languages. Oh, right. Okay. Well, the Zoom IQ7 is definitely better than the internal mic and far less echoey. It also has pretty good stereo separation. If you listen to this in the podcast, however, you will not hear that stereo effect because I mix my show down to mono, but I could hear it just now. While I said the Zoom IQ7 audio is better than the internal mic, I'm not sure it's blow your socks off better. As Marianne so adeptly points out, the advantage of the internal mic is that it's free. The Zoom IQ7 is $110 and does require some fiddling to get it just right. Remember, though, that some of that fiddling about is using the gain dial to make sure your recording is going to be good, not peaking, and not so low that you have to increase the gain in post-processing and introduce more noise, or amplify the noise, I should say. You can also monitor real-time using the headphone jack so you'll know if you're getting a good recording or not. So this is kind of value-added fiddling. Marianne and I figured out that you don't have to use the ugly and ancient-looking Zoom Handy Recorder app to do the recording. If you'd like a more modern interface for your recordings, you can use the app that comes with the more expensive Shure MV88. It's called Shure Plus Motive, and it has the same kinds of features that a visual, like a visual meter to see if you're peaking. The Zoom software is so old, your options to move your recordings off device are limited to email and SoundCloud. With Motive, you can save to camera roll, messages, mail, Dropbox files, and all of the usual suspects, so that's probably a better choice. Even if you don't buy the Zoom IQ7 and use the internal mic, I highly recommend that you use one of these apps so you can see visually if you're getting enough gain on the recording or if your speakers are peeking out, both of which can render your once-in-a-lifetime recording completely useless. This did not turn into the resounding endorsement of the Zoom IQ7 that I would had hoped it would be, but I've been encouraged by listeners to do reviews, even if the product doesn't turn out quite as good as I'd hoped. I think the Zoom IQ7 is a bit complicated to set up, but if you don't want to hold a phone right up to someone's mouth to get a good recording, it's a better option than the internal microphone. But it's up to you whether it's $110 better. Well, Frank in the chat room often calls this pledge break. When I post an article that includes hardware you can buy on Amazon, I always link to the Amazon page for the device. I do that for two reasons. One is so it's easy for you to click and buy, and two, so that if you do click and buy, a small percentage of the purchase may go back to helping fund the production of the podcast. In this week's show, for example, you just heard me talk about the Zoom IQ7, which didn't turn out all that great, but there is an Amazon affiliate link to it in the article. Later in the show, I'll be talking about the Zoom H4n Pro, which is amazing, and there's an Amazon affiliate link to it as well. I'll be talking about some microphones too, and of course, their links will be to Amazon. Maybe you're not in the market for audio gear, but out of curiosity, you click on one of those links. 
While you're there, if you happen to buy some birdseed or toilet paper, those purchases could also go to help fund the show because you got there through that Amazon affiliate link. Every little bit helps, so click away. Hello, fellow castaways. Professor Terry Austin here. A few days ago, I received a text message from Allison with a link to the original Washington Post story about smartphones causing users to grow horns. She simply asked, is this real? This question is not unprecedented. I've gotten questions of this nature from Allison in the past. There was an incident not all that long ago where I received an x-ray of the actual pod foot, asking my opinion about a trauma she was having. In this latest missive, Allison wondered what I thought of the smartphone horns topic. You may have seen the splashy headlines over the past few days. A story out of Australia announced that smartphone users were sprouting horns. There are even some pretty graphic medical images showing evidence of this phenomenon. More on that in a moment. Of course, there was some initial wild speculation that maybe this was the result of radiation from our favorite devices. That most certainly is not the case. There may well, however, be some simple musculoskeletal remodeling going on, and that is a well-documented and long-understood process. A bit more about myself. I'm a professor of human anatomy and physiology at Temple College, where I've taught students who want to be nurses, dental hygienists, and more for the last 19 years. During my time in grad school, I did quite a bit of work in the Human Identification Lab at the University of North Texas, Think CSI. That lab was founded by Dr. Harold Gilking, who was the lead forensic anthropologist at the Twin Towers event. Dr. Gilking also happened to be a major investigator at the Marah Building bombing in Oklahoma City. In this lab, we routinely looked at skeletal anomalies, including some similar to the current topic, to better understand the cases we were evaluating. Before we rush to the conclusion that this study is complete rubbish, let me say things like this absolutely can happen. In fact, these sorts of things are seen on skeletons all the time. The term for this is enthesopathy, or more simply, musculoskeletal stress markers, Everyone understands that exercise can make muscles grow. However, skeletal muscles are largely ineffective without bones, which create a lever system for muscles to act on to create motion. Now, let's explore this process. You exercise, muscles grow, and as these muscles grow, they put stress on their attachment points on the bone. This triggers feedback mechanisms that cause the bone attachment points to enlarge to accommodate the larger muscles. Just consider the concept of repetitive motion pain and or injuries. Let's try something. Let your own left hand palm down over your right forearm and wiggle your fingers. You can feel those individual strap-like muscles moving. Those attach at specific spots in your wrist and hand and put minute stresses on those bones with each movement you make. Don't worry, this is a sort of stress that's not a bad thing. It's an interplay between muscle and bone where each communication determines how much help is required to complete the current task. Back in the early days of the Fox TV show Bones, there was an episode where the remains of a young woman were retrieved from a pond. The forensic anthropologist Bones, played by Emily Deschantel, stated something like, Female, mid-twenties, quite possibly a tennis player. And you can just imagine the skeptical audience thinking something like, Hollywood, hi, but it's real. Someone who knows how to notice and identify these bone responses could absolutely make determinations such as 
This person does a lot of typing on a keyboard. Or, this person does a lot of thumb typing. Or, this person is right-handed and appears to golf on a regular basis. But, let's move on and recognize that the original story has most likely been debunked. The lead author on the original 2018 paper just so happens to be a chiropractor who sells posture pillows. Curiously, these same pillows might actually be marketed as alleviating the very stresses that might cause growth such as he reported. Ultimately, the study itself had flaws. One of those flaws was that all 1,200 participants in the study seemed to have come from the good doctor's own chiropractic practice. His study describes these horns as prominences from the external occipital protuberance. In layman's term, that's the bump on the back of your head. Way more prominent in men, all bone bumps become larger as muscles become larger and men tend to be more muscular. In fact, the original paper even says that sex is the primary predictor in determining whether an individual would develop these structures with men being 5.48 times more likely than females. That part isn't news. We've known that for over 100 years. So, to wrap this up, people leaning their head forward in that characteristic pose while watching their smartphone screen most certainly could be imposing recognizable stress patterns on muscles and bones to facilitate this posture. I would mark this one down as needs further research. Or, in the parlance of a recent TV series, myth not entirely busted. Now, if we could only do something about those distracted folks who bump right into us because they're staring at those phones while they're walking on public streets, rather than watching where they're going. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed. Well, thank you so much for doing that, Terry. I really appreciate you always being there for my anatomy needs. I've been wanting a better way to make audio recordings on the road for a long time. When I've needed to record when away from home, I have been using an ATR2100 USB to and XLR microphone hooked up to my MacBook Pro, but that's not truly portable. As I mentioned in my review of the Zoom IQ7 for Marianne, I use the Zoom H2 as a portable recorder, but its time came to an end in usefulness and that whole battery corroding problem. I wanted to upgrade to a better recorder, so as I mentioned, for Mother's Day, Steve bought me the Fancy Pants Zoom H4n Pro. This device is not for those who want something simple, lightweight, elegant, with a modern interface. The Zoom H4n Pro has the same ancient interface as my old Zoom H2, but it's bigger, heavier, and far more complicated. It is a very thick user manual, and I've actually read a very lot of it, but I suspect I will never fully understand all of the capabilities of the Zoom H4n Pro. Now that I've scared most of the people away, I'll tell the rest of you the good news. The Zoom H4n Pro is only $220, which is surprisingly inexpensive for this highly capable device. As I said, I'm not going to be using its full capabilities, such as studio recordings of live instruments, but let's take a look at what it can do for me and, in turn, the value it brings to you as a listener of my content. The Zoom H4n Pro has a pair of what they call XY stereo microphones built into the device. But more importantly, the device will also accept two XLR microphone inputs. As a consumer of my content, you care deeply about that. XLR is the standard analog connector for what I would affectionately call big girl microphones, while others might call them professional audio gear. The Zoom H4n Pro can be used as a fully portable recorder, saving audio recordings to an SD card and running on two AA batteries. 
That's great, but if you do have power available, you can also plug the H4N Pro into a wall power via the Zoom AD-14 AC power supply adapter, which is not included, but it's only 20 bucks on Amazon. Guess what? There's an Amazon affiliate link for that in the show notes. Anyway, the best news about the power supply is that it's very tiny and very light, and it even fits into the $10 hard case Steve bought for the recorder. Now, I want to talk about the SD card for a moment. Steve figured that SD cards are really inexpensive now, so he went for a 32 gigabyte card. You can never have too much storage, right? Well, actually, that's wrong when it comes to the Zoom H4n Pro. I turned the recorder on for the first time with the 32 gig card in it, and I had to wait nearly three minutes for it to boot up. I was ready to send that back on day one. I read the manual looking for hints on what could be wrong, and finally had to turn to the Googles. There I discovered the problem. The bigger the SD card, the longer the Zoom H4n Pro will take to boot up. I have no idea why this is, but painfully I had to pay $10 for a 4 gigabyte SD card, and now the thing boot the darn thing boots up really quickly. I'm not worried about the storage with 4 gigabytes, by the way. Even when Bart and I record, like last week's marathon hour and 45 minute programming by stealth, the uncompressed stereo file was only 1.2 gigabytes. So this is fine for, I could do a week's worth of recordings with this without any trouble. One more thing on the SD card, and I know it's a small thing, but it's very irritating. The Zoom H4n Pro has a menu where you can declare the time and date, but the SD card records everything as being created on 31 December, 1969. That date is infamous. It's the day before Unix was invented, and it's the day before because I'm on the West Coast in California. The date is actually... Uh, the next day is the real day that uh, Unix was invented. So this is basically a way of saying that your clock is set to zero. Now, I wouldn't really worry about this, but I had a hazel rule that checks the dates of my files, and it moves them around depending on whether they have aged out. So, for example, if they're in one folder, they actually get deleted. And in another, they swoosh over to my Drobo and are removed from my drive. So I had a problem that they kept swooshing over. Dorothy saw what I was doing with my Hazel rule, and she pointed out if I changed it to looking for the modified date on files, the last modified date, then it would keep the files because the modified date is the current date on the SD card, but the original uh, creation date is that that uh, December of 1969 date. Now, I don't want to downplay the complexity of this device, but I think I'm getting the hang of it. With my experience with the less capable Zoom H2, I did have a leg up on the learning curve for the interface. But let's say, for example, when you want to record, there's a big red record button on the front and you push it. But that is not starting the recording. That's when the H4n Pro is fixing to make a plan to start recording. This actually makes sense, though. When you hit that record button, the mics become live and you can see the levels on the monochrome screen. You can monitor the audio going into the recorder with the headphone jack on the side, so you're sure you've got your mics placed well for the recording. And there's a toggle on one side to raise and lower the gain, and another toggle on the other side to raise and lower the monitor level. Only when you're sure everything is set up correctly do you hit the record button a second time. Now, how many recordings do you think I missed over the years with my Zoom H2 before I finally memorized that sequence to hit it a second time? I can tell you, it was a lot of times. I briefly mentioned that the screen is monochrome, which I guess is good for battery length. But for some reason, the text is in a hideous font that is super pixelated. I'm talking like uh, it's something in the range of a Commodore 64 font, but not quite as pretty as that. 
Maybe the font was chosen the day Unix started. The other nice feature is that the longest you can have the backlight on is 30 seconds. Again, that's great battery life, but it's really hard to see what you're doing. I'm going to take a break from all these descriptions of how to use the Zoom H4n Pro and let you listen to a couple of recordings. If you've already heard Chit Chat Across the Pond with Alexander Kosovan, CEO of MacPaw, then you'll have heard this first clip. This recording is using the internal mics on the Zoom H4n Pro. Well, I'm here with Alexander Kosovan, who is the CEO and founder of MacPaw, creators of both Setup and Clean My Mac. Thanks for agreeing to be on the show. Thank you. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Great to be here. Well, that sounds really awful, doesn't it? I bet you're expecting amazing audio out of the Zoom H4n Pro. Sounds kind of like that Zoom IQ7 for a moment. Anyway, there were a couple of major contributors to that bad audio. First of all, I'm in a super challenging room. The table between me and Alexander is very deep, but I knew he was soft-spoken, so I put the recorder very close to him, which means it's really far away from me. And I've got a giant plate glass window behind me to ensure maximum room echo. Well, none of that helped. There was another big problem. I had the mics 90 degrees from the correct orientation. I spent a lot of time reading this part of the manual before recording with Alexander, and even after all that reading, I still got it wrong. I assumed that having the front of the recorder facing me so that I could see the meters was the right way to orient the recorder. Turns out that puts the mic facing the mics facing to the right and left of me and Alexander instead of pointing at us. Now, here's what pained me the most about all of this. I asked Chuck Joyner about it the other day, and he was the one who figured out what the problem was. I hate to admit that Chuck Joyner had some value. Well, the good news is that I learned this before the interview with Chris Chapman from Mac Stadium that you heard earlier in the show. In that interview, I was standing right next to Chris, and I was able to point the mic at me and back at him, and it was oriented the correct way, and we didn't have nearly as much reflected uh, audio. Let me play just a smidge of that recording so you can hear again the difference from the interview with Alexander. And let him tell you about Mac Stadium. Thanks. Uh, Mac Stadium is a global provider of Mac infrastructure, so you might think of us as an AWS. I cut that off kind of quickly. I know you just heard it, so you didn't want to hear it all. But even with the crowd noise, that's way better with the microphones correctly oriented. Shortly after I got home from WWDC, I recorded Chit Chat Across the Pond with the awesome Ange Tomek from Slovenia. We goofed around a bunch after we were done recording. We started comparing audio rigs, as one does, and I showed off my shiny Zoom H4n Pro. While he was enthusiastic that I had the Pro, he said, that's got great preamps. He said, don't use the internal mics. Those are crap. Well, that made me sad at first. His recommendation, though, turned out to be awesome. He suggested that I buy a couple of Shure SM58 XLR mics with a couple of XLR cables and use those as the inputs to the Zoom H4n Pro. Now, you might be thinking, worried that he just cost me an arm and leg, but it turns out the SM58s are only around $110 a piece on Amazon. Now, plus, it's fun to get new gear, am I right? I'd like to point out that my podcasting friends have been using the Zoom H4 for years, and maybe not the Pro, and maybe not the N, anyway, but uh, they've been using it as a mobile XLR mic rig forever, and anybody who's anybody knows that the Shure SM58s are indestructible road mics that you can count on. I've always heard that you can toss them in a case with a set of snare drums, and they'll be fine when you get off the Greyhound bus for your gig at the other end of your trip. What I was not prepared for was how amazing the quality of these mics would be. I'm going to give you a bit of a teaser audio from the upcoming Chit Chat Across the Pond I told you about with Dr. Devin Polashik. 
She has a lovely voice naturally, but even she said that she would like to always talk through this mic from now on in real life. And remember, people never love the voice, the sound of their own voice. Wow, you sound fancy, Devin. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alison, for this opportunity to talk to an audience I would otherwise seldom reach. Isn't that gorgeous? Sounds great compared to the other mics. Now, while she sounds fantastic, I'm sure you'll have noticed I was popping my peas quite a bit. I didn't have a pop filter on the mics, and more importantly, I forgot to monitor via the headphone jack on the H4N Pro. I learned my lesson from that interview, and the next day, I interviewed your favorite crusher of dreams, Dr. Marianne Gary. In the past, when I've interviewed her, I've always had to fight to get her close enough to the mic. This time, we put the mic in a proper mic stand, and I put it super close to her. For once, she was loud enough, and since I learned my lesson and was monitoring via the headphone jack, I actually pulled the mic away from her for the same popping pee problem. The combination of a well-placed mic with monitoring gives us the best recording quality the two of us have ever had. Here's a snippet to prove the point. That sounds like a bucket of fun, Marianne. Welcome back to the show. It is a bucket of fun, Allison. Thanks for letting me come back and crush more dreams. I told you she loves that line. Anyway, I'm delighted with this new setup for in-person interviews. I'll tell you a bit more about how the setup works in order to capture the collective doctor's dulcet tones. There are three, three very tiny buttons on the left side of the H4N Pro. I tried to find an explanation of how to use them in the manual, but trial and error turned out to be much more fruitful. The top one says mic, and when pressed, the red light next to it lights up, indicating that you are using the internal stereo mics. If you have not connected external mics, this one mic light will automatically be lit up. Below the mic button, there are two more buttons labeled simply one and two. These numbers correspond to the XLR jacks, uh, one and two, which are clearly marked in black indentations on a black surface. You can mess with these buttons and eventually get both to light up for the two mics, and more trial and error will light up one mic or the other mic, making that XLR mic live. I haven't found a repeatable process to select the right mic yet. It's sort of like plugging in a USB-A cable. Wrong, wrong, right. But once it lights up, it works. The Zoom H4n Pro will solve one more problem for me. Often I happen to be out of town on NoSilicast Live recording night, say at Lindsay's house or maybe out in Zion, but I still record the show. For the last few years, I've been using my go-to road mic, the $68 ATR2100. While it's been very good to me, the audio cannot compare to the SM58s. The ATR2100 has an XLR jack on it, but it also has a USB jack, so I can connect it directly to my Mac with a dongle for USB-C, of course. The SM58s only have XLR, so I need a USB interface to use them with my Mac. Turns out the H4n Pro can serve that function as well. I had to read the manual again in order to figure out the trick to getting the Zoom to stop acting as a recorder and simply let the audio pass through over USB. If you plug the H4n Pro to into the Mac while it's powered up, it insists on working as a recorder. You have to plug in the USB cable with the power off, and then the Zoom will boot itself up and use bus power over USB, saving your batteries. The Arcane menu system comes back into play when using the H4n Pro as a USB interface. The menu on screen when you plug in a USB cable offers you two options, storage or audio I slash F. The first option allows you to read the SD card from your computer, which could be handy on Macs without SD card slots. But of course, using a 1957-era mini USB cable with a USB-A to USB-C dongle to connect it to the Mac, so I guess it's not that handy. But if you had it with you, it's not bad. The second option, audio I slash F, means audio interface. 
Using the scroll wheel on the right side, you can scroll to that option and then press in on the scroll wheel to select. You'll now be invited to set the recording frequency to 44.1 kilohertz or 48 kilohertz. Now remember this part of the story. I set mine to 44.1 kilohertz as that is the normal standard frequency people use. We'll come back to, again to this important point. After selecting the frequency, you can scroll down to select connect and click the uh, wheel again. And Bob's your uncle, you're in business. The only way I knew all of that was learning it from my years with the Zoom H2. Okay, let's listen to my first recording using the Zoom H4n Pro as a USB interface with my glorious new SMB 50, I'm sorry, SM58 microphone. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast hosted at podfeet.com. Well, that's not exactly what we were looking for, now was it? Remember how I had to set the recording frequency? I had set it correctly to 44.1 kilohertz. I'm not sure how this problem is caused, but I know how to fix it, and it's nothing on the recorder. You fix it in a tiny little app buried in the utilities folder inside applications on all Macs called Audio MIDI Setup. In Audio MIDI Setup, you'll see all of your audio input devices listed down the left sidebar. Find and select the input device you're using. In my case, it was simply called H4. And you'll see a format pull down and will be incorrectly set to 48 kilohertz instead of 44.1 kilohertz. With that little change, let's listen in again. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com. Hopefully this should sound a little bit better. This is now at 44.1 kilohertz in audio MIDI setup, which should make my voice sound just a wee bit more normal. Well, that's certainly better. Just so you appreciate that audio, here's a sample of the ATR2100 using XLR into the Zoom H4M Pro as a USB interface. This will tell you how much better the SM58 is. By the way, this may be the last time you hear this slightly grating audio. Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com. This is now the ATR2100 using its XLR input to the H4N Pro as a USB interface to the MacBook Pro. Now, you've been hearing the $327 Heil PR40 microphone that I normally record with, and you've also heard the $110 Shure SM58 mic coming in and out during these recordings. I think the Heil definitely sounds better, but I'm not sure I would say it was three times as good, though. Those SM58s are amazing for the price. I'm thrilled with the capability of the Zoom H4n Pro, especially when used with the Shure SM58 microphones. You should be excited too because it will make my road recordings ever so much more pleasant to listen to. That is, if I remember to hit record a second time. Well, that's a lot of audio recording goodness and it's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. And remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can become a patron by going to podfeet.com slash Patreon. You can play in our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. You can join our Slack group and talk to all the little nerds over there, podfeet.com slash Slack. Now remember, we will not be having a live show until July 14th because we're not going to be around. That doesn't mean you guys can't still go hang out in the chat room, though, at podfeet.com slash chat on Sunday night at 5 p.m. Pacific time. You guys never pay attention to me anyway, right? In any case, thanks for listening and stay subscribed.